Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to the strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. I'm Meg Rivers, Senior Editor for Pharmaceutical Technology, Pharmaceutical Technology Europe, and Biopharm International. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the editors who will share more about what you can expect in this episode. On this episode, we're going to examine drug supply chain shortages and how to potentially safeguard the United States drug supply by bringing or onshoring or reshoring or insuring manufacturing back to the US. I'm Chris Spivey, Editorial Director of Pharmaceutical Technology, Pharmaceutical Technology Europe and Biopharm International, and we'll be discussing this topic with Fernando Musio, Professor of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering at Rutgers, and Frederick Kahn, VP at Wavelength Pharmaceuticals. So I'd like to um, point to Flow, the company CEO, Eric Edwards, and uh, his uh, pointing to continuous manufacturing as a potential way to jumpstart some internal um, manufacturing of certain types of product, uh, especially biologics, I guess. Uh, do you think that in general, most people recognize something has to be done and there's an urgent need? Or do you think the current perception is, well, things have drifted for two decades. If we let it drift another decade, maybe then we'll start being more serious about it. So Fernando, how do you feel about the current perception in general for our industry? Well, uh, I mean, I guess it depends on what the words mean, right? But uh, whether most people realize, I mean, I had the, the unfortunate, I guess, distinction of, having been you know raising red flags about this issue for quite a few years in fact um by myself and also with with a colleague and friend of mine Fred Upton we wrote uh, you know open position papers seven or eight years ago about these and we shared them with uh regulatory agencies and with uh funding agencies etc saying look we're getting ourselves into a really bad situation should something happen that disrupts international commerce, we would be, you know, in, in a very bad place. Um, it took the pandemic for um, many legislators to, to want to really talk about it. Because, you know, I mean, it, otherwise it sounded like, you know, we're raising an alarm or something that will never happen, right? We're crying wolf, whatever. Well, the pandemic showed us quickly that indeed um, we might not be able to get things we really need. Uh, if something happens that you know produces lockdowns in another country, not even malicious, right? But just the fact that there was a point that emerged relatively fast where people couldn't make things, couldn't ship things, couldn't, you know, uh, were significantly uh, prevented from accessing ingredients and materials. Or when countries were basically keeping things within boundaries just in case they needed it needed them for themselves, right? So that all of that happened, right? And in some sense, um, I guess it, we got lucky in the sense that it, I don't think it was near anywhere near as bad as it could have been. 
should the pathogen have been more more you know uh, virulent should we have faced uh, a situation where the early waves were much more contagious where you know things things could have been significantly worse this would have been significantly worse was this enough i don't know i hope so because if it wasn't maybe we will have to see an even worse thing happen before we act and I want to point out, right, without getting into the politics of it, uh, in the last week, we witnessed, again, a major geopolitical change happening within days, where suddenly one of the world's big economies uh, suddenly is being, right, um, shut down, basically, from commerce, right? And, well, what if we face a similar scenario emerging quickly, within a week or two or three, at some point in the future involving India, China, any of the countries that we really depend on to supply us with, you know, materials that we don't make anymore, right? Then we suddenly could be facing a situation where we can no longer import insulin or some other drugs that are critical to maintaining people alive in the millions. This can happen. That's what the pandemic shows. So your question really, Chris, is, whether our political system is able to recognize the big danger that this situation revealed and whether we as a society have the will and the strength to act meaningfully about it. I hopefully, I, I, I sincerely hope so. I don't know. I'm very glad you broadened the picture. Um, Frederick, how, how would you see this? Well, I, I... I see this as not only the continuous continuous manufacturing is one of the solutions to implement and develop further, but I see it in in a second uh, in two in two different uh, ways. Um, I think agility and volatility is one of the solutions. I'll come back to it in a minute, and uh, digitalization as well. I think exactly as, as Fernando alluded to, we are at the risk today, we've seen what happened uh, last week or two weeks ago, of, of um, we are at the mercy of major political and therefore economic changes in the world today. And therefore we need to be um, ready to, to react and weather the storm. Uh, let me give you an example, agility and, 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 um, and dynamism. I work for a corporation that uh, immediately almost overnight in the framework of the pandemic crisis um, tripled the production of two essential drugs, okay, neuromuscular blockers that were barred from being exported from India and China and, and became almost overnight uh, the sole supply in the Western world. It's this kind of uh, ability to adapt and agility, volatility we need to promote and we need to expand further so that we can not only anticipate, but also weather those storms. That's, that's one thing. The second thing is um, tomorrow morning, you know, China and today we've seen the situation in Russia is cut off from export and, and commerce with the, the rest of the world. And then we are left with not only lack of uh, production ability or production uh, access to production, but also we're left with um, uh, dramatic cost differentials, which we all know is the main drivers for us to source 
uh, products out of China. Think about the, you know, the fact that China produces today 80% of air powering of the world, for example. So digitalization is probably another way to look at how we can uh, address those crises and become not only independent, but also independent and very good economic cost conditions. Reducing costs, uh, reducing producing quality issues or product quality issues between uh, you know, using automation and, and, and robotics uh, and basically uh, increase real-time visibility for access to, uh, to new product or to existing product. But I think that we need to, to factor in the, 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 the situation we're in, that is the world situation can change overnight. We need to be extremely uh, ready uh, to, to adapt and, and agile and, and, and volatile not only in developing new products and increasing capacity, but in constantly improving the cost of access to these products through uh, new techniques and new technologies, not only as continuous manufacturing, but also digitalization, which to me is the next revolution we need to bring in if we want to secure our dependency, independence. Let me supplement my previous answer because I realized that I forgot about the second half of your question, Chris. And uh, I, I agree actually completely. I, you know, I've been working on continuous manufacturing for about 20 years. Um, so, you know, based on that, that experience, I want to mention the following, right? I want to go a little broader than continuous manufacturing. I think it's useful to uh, talk about advanced manufacturing in general, which continues is just, you know, one uh, component, if you will, right? Um, advanced manufacturing, if we want to try to define it in a, in a way that, you know, hopefully uh, allow us to very quickly realize that we're all talking about the same thing, involves the ability to develop processes that we can design digitally, monitor using, you know, various sensors and systems, and then control in real time so that we can exercise real-time process control and real-time quality control, right? So advanced manufacturing are systems where you have the ability to fully understand the process and then you can identify the critical variables that allow you to control the process so that you minimize cost, maximize productivity, and maximize quality, right? So continuous manufacturing is what I think everybody will agree, the first complete implementation of advanced manufacturing. And we achieved that for solid dose products for all the main types of, of manufacturing routes, but primarily direct compression, although it has also been done for uh, other forms of solid dose manufacturing. We're for now tableting, for tableting, for, for chemical yes. reactions. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So for chemical reactions, for API manufacturing, that part is quickly advancing now. It hasn't been fully implemented yet as a, as a true fully implemented advanced manufacturing system where you really are monitoring and controlling everything and then exercising real-time process control. But it's very, it's, 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 we are within, it's within reach in the next, I don't know, year or two that can be done. It might have been done in some places they have just not talked about it, right? But in the public domain, I'm not aware of any fully implemented yet example, but that is really what uh, Eric Edwards is trying to do in Flow. And that's also what, uh, DARPA has been funding in various groups, including mine, and you know, there's been a project going on uh, involving MIT and Purdue University and SRI and others 
you know, for years now, right? And there is a company that I think you mentioned in previous conversations um, uh, on demand pharmaceuticals that is trying to render this into a commercially available methodology. So my opinion is that if we as a country will embark in this massive generational effort to bring pharmaceutical manufacturing back to the US, and if we want to do it in a sustainable way so that we don't lose it again in the 20 years afterwards, because again, there are savings to be had, et cetera, we should implement it in a way that addresses the two main advantages that drove uh, offshoring in the first place. One is the cost element and the other is the agility element, right? Now, a fully implemented continuous manufacturing system allows you to develop products and processes much, much faster than the traditional batch method. And it's well documented, you can create a formulation and you can create good product and you can have a first draft of your process in a matter of two or three days. Yeah, and then when you have to repeat that, optimize, etc., you are able to do the whole thing maybe in a month, month and a half, you can do it. We've done it, others have done it too. This is much faster than the typical batch approach where it takes months, right? So the same goes for other forms of manufacturing. And the reason is that you can do your process running for just a few minutes and get all the data you need to characterize that condition. And then you can run your entire sequence of design experiments in a day or two. And now you have all the data you need basically to select how you wanna run your process. And you can do this in, in continuous systems that are instrumented where you can capture that data. Just not to, I don't wanna go too long. I don't wanna, you know, uh, filibuster this conversation, but I wanna <laughs> mention one more thing that is very, very important. This agility and this ability to produce large amounts of data should enable us, should, to significantly uh, shorten the time it takes for regulatory evaluation of the product quality and the process. And the reason is that, you know, the traditional approach is based on extractive sampling where you take 20 tablets from a batch, measure them, and then, you know, basically you hope that they are representative of the whole batch and you do, uh, you make a decision based on, you know, thinking that you have mitigated risk, yeah? In this other scenario of advanced manufacturing, you can measure the composition of basically every product unit you make. You can get millions of data points, literally, for every batch you make. So the risk of missing something is astronomically low. Yeah. And the focus should be on is the process capable. And the, batch, and the batch size is only the, the duration at which you run the machine, basically. Mm -hmm. It makes things much easier and much faster from an API development standpoint. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, Frederick, do you want to continue or should I go into the next section? We're already talking about solutions. Maybe I'll just introduce that and let you, Frederick, give the first response. So there is a series of um, regulatory uh, acts that are being talked about, Mitigating Emergency Drug Shortages Act, which is talking about creating a stronger, faster FDA, essentially. There's another one called Securing America's Medicine Cabinet Act. That's essentially to stockpile, but it was a similar way earlier on for biotech. And the Pharmaceutical Independent Long-Term Readiness Reform Act, which is a centers of excellence kind of play. So if it were left up to you, Frederick, and you, Fernando, but you, Frederick, first, how would you prioritize either the regulatory stimulus or the sort of economics 
incentives, which if, if, if you were the czar of all pharmaceuticals, how, how would you prioritize what needs to be done first? I think, I think this is a, that's a very good question because to me, one is a consequence of the other. So to cut the chase, I mean, the priority for me and for us is definitely on quality and definitely on privileging the, not only the processes and the ways, but also uh, the, 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 the new acts from FDA and different regulatory bodies to enforce the highest possible level of quality out of which if it's correctly done, uh, the best economic conditions will be derived from. Uh, I, think, I think it's only fair to say uh, that if you invest the time, if you invest into the new technologies, if you invest the new process, a new act, a new regulation, to ensure that you're gonna reach the utmost possible level of quality, the purest, the finest, the most stable uh, type of uh, either uh, API design or, or formulation, um, not necessarily the price, but the total cost of ownership for you and your customer will be optimum. I mean, how many times have we seen, uh, you know, lower price or lower cost of access to different goods being implemented out of production from China or India or whatever? And the, uh, the total cost the, the, of, of the supply chain to be sky rising uh, before, because of numerous issues, because of uh, of uh, rejects, because of recalls, because of impurities, and 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 what have you. So I do believe, always have been, the, that uh, if you invest and if you make top level quality your priority, and you work hand in hand with the regulatory bodies in order to uh, those for those regulations to be implemented um, economically from a cost standpoint and from a safety standpoint, which is definitely a priority, uh, that will be a, a remarkable investment. You will not regret the, uh, the, the return of and the reward of. So my priority and, and the firms that I've been working with has always been on quality. Uh, I wouldn't say pricing or cost is, is secondary, absolutely not. But traditionally you can see, and based on experience, I have numerous examples that come to mind you can see then one derives from the other. It's a, it's a mid-term, long-term investment, but to invest into quality uh, is, the, is the best return on investment and best time of investment that you can think of. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I want to maybe emphasize a few, a few additional details. Uh, first, some very positive things have already happened, right? Uh, FDA has been identifying advanced manufacturing as a critical priority now for at least 10 years, maybe 15 years, and they're beginning to, to see the fruits of that. Uh, USP has very clearly identified advanced manufacturing as a major priority, and they do emphasize the quality perspective, right? Uh, I think that the fact that uh, Frank Pallone, uh, you know, from New Jersey, uh, Congressman Pallone, who's the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, has been advocating for uh, centers of excellence uh, going into FDA, providing funding to support these for implementation of Advanced and continuous manufacturing is an extremely positive thing, and he's been advocating for this for quite a few years. Hopefully, this will come, become law soon, and, and it will be very important. Now, in terms of additional things to do, I agree with the proposals that, that you just provided, uh, and maybe a couple more that I think we, we discussed when we spoke before. Um, so, 
First thing I think would be important is to have a national plan. How do we get there, right? Um, because otherwise we risk just taking action without a real understanding of how to execute what the, the vision. So identifying what is the actual vision, what are the real goals, and then having a plan that makes the proper investments, right? In terms of investments, something we haven't mentioned in this conversation, right? Um, we talk about how we would take a lot of money, but the benefits are huge. And it's not just having a more secure situation. I mean, right now, I believe I see numbers that identify the trade deficit in the pharmaceutical sector running somewhere between 60 and $70 billion a year, right? Um, that's a lot of money. If we could, let's say, reduce that deficit by half, we would be adding tens of billions of dollars to the GDP every year, right? And we could go beyond uh, cutting the deficit by half, right? Let's say that we wanted to eventually over time turn the US back into an exporter, the way Germany is, the way Ireland is, right? Not just China and India. Um, yeah, it would probably take a couple hundred billion dollars in investment. I don't know what the number is. We have to, it depends on what we want to do. But the economic payoff would be huge in terms of jobs, in terms of the ability to respond to crisis, in terms of increasing the country's ability also to uh, operate without fear, right? In the, in the geopolitical arena. I mean, we were talking about how a disruption of commerce with China would put us in a very bad situation. Okay, well, what if the US needed to take significant action in the economic front against China? Isn't this a huge limit to our capability to um, address problems the way we are you know, doing with Russia right now? I mean, I would think politicians would think long and hard before trying to do something you know, like this if they needed to, because they would be concerned about, okay, we interrupt commerce with China, then what do we do with all the people that depend on that commerce to get access to medicines, right? I mean, I, I think that there is, the, the benefits are huge. You mentioned rightfully so earlier, uh, the cooperation on demand, pharma. Yeah. On demand pharma works, I, be, I believe, without breaching anything confidential on behalf of the government to identify a number of essential drugs. And then have a plan subsidized and, and well invested to, you know, to transform those drugs from a classic manufacturing process to a continuing manufacturing flow up to the point, we'll see whether they get there, but up to the point where they will uh, implement point of delivery of those drugs at hospitals and pharmacies and so on and so forth, uh, killing two birds with one stone, reducing the, the duration and the cost of access to those firms, and then second, completely uh, and annihilating the de dependency on uh, China as far as raw materials and intermediates are, are concerned. And I, I do believe, and I would hope that the European Union has the same thing, that there is a there is a plan, there is a strategy funded by the government and the politicians, you know, to accelerate those kind of initiatives. Well, I don't know that there is yet. I haven't, if there is, I haven't seen it, but you know, there are many mechanisms the government could implement to facilitate this. Uh, I think that a new emphasis on quality is important. I think that there are other aspects of regulatory reform that could be very beneficial. For example, for injectables, we have the 503B manufacturing methodology that approves a site. And then the people operating the site have to demonstrate quality that they can maintain quality, but they don't need prior approval. 
to change the process or to bring a new product. There's a list of products they can make once the site gets approved. I don't really understand why we couldn't do something like that for many of the generic solid dose products that we've been making for 30 years. I mean, we know how to make them. We know what the quality requirements are. We have the technology to implement those processes in a very, very detailed state of control. That would change things very quickly, right? Because it would accelerate approvals, decrease the burden, have a very significant effect. There are other things the government can do very easily, right? Uh, but if we do develop a plan, and if we make funding available, I would try to isolate it from potential changes when the politics in DC change. Maybe we could create sort of like a foundation, right? That could have be char chartered with administering the funding and pushing forward the plan so that it would be isolated from, you know, specific opinions when the government changes hands or whatever, right? It, it, I think it's important that we begin to develop the ability to act in the long term in a concerted way and with consensus goals to be achieved and that we find mechanisms to protect those efforts from the instability that comes every time we have an election, right? The government could agree on for critical drugs, having a certain percentage of the value added in country. That would reduce the incentive of having certain parts of the supply chain address overseas where you know the tax benefits would disappear, right? And like that, there are quite a few things that could be done, which I think would be enormously beneficial across the entire you know, spectrum of the industry. Totally agree, fully agree. Yeah. So uh, I'm actually a lot more optimistic uh, after having spoken with you two than I expected to be, which is awesome. Have you got any kind of parting thoughts or any uh, anything you'd like to sort of highlight? I, just to complete what Chris mentioned, I mean, I know of at least two or three big pharma uh, companies that uh, have decided to only develop new products. Some of them, their new APIs and new finished dosage forms using continuous flow manufacturing and continuous tabletting. And, uh, and I, I do believe that, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's innovation. The, 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 the future for us, and I, I've seen it done, and I do believe that this can be achieved. The future of the pharmaceutical industry is in innovation, is research and development, is differentiation. I think the, the, the digital age, uh, you know, the, our, our activities 4.0, so to speak, uh, coupled with continuous manufacturing or, or facilitating continuous manufacturing, continuous tabletting, is the answer to the question that will help us to concur over the next three years. I do believe it can be done. A, a much higher level of independence, whether it is in the US or in uh, in, in Europe. And, and just to bounce back on, on Chris, uh, comment on the long-term planning, which I wholeheartedly agree. And this is coming from somebody who's gonna have an election in two months with maybe another president, maybe not, and, and, and so on. But I, I think we need, to, we need to look at things in the long-term process. The, the Germans have a huge trade surplus. The French have a huge trade deficit. The difference between the two, not only that because, you know, we are German, French and German, we like each other now, but the difference between the two is that some think long-term, okay? And then, you know, a, a Bayer strategy is 10 years, 15 years. And, 
And, and us Latins, we have a tendency to be much more operational tactical and, and less long-term oriented. The, the, the future is in planning and in proper planning in new solutions such as uh, contract manufacturing, contract tableting, and digitalization. I couldn't agree more. I just want to add one comment in, you know, so like my, my closing thought is that I think it's very critical to be clear-eyed about this, right? Uh, implementing advanced manufacturing is very knowledge intensive. It requires a lot of specific knowledge. Many of the generic companies that haven't done it don't have this knowledge, but, you know, period, this is a fact. So if we really want to, make this happen, we have to find ways where we make the knowledge and the technology available at a low entry cost and with quick turnaround. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to do it. So creating technology transfer mechanisms, creating uh, places where it's easy for companies to come in, to learn, to experiment, and to quickly get support in implementation will be critical. Uh, this, by the same token, if we talk about reshoring 50% of what we lost, right? You know, I'm not saying 100, I'm saying half, over a, a next number of years, which is a huge task. We're talking about thousands of products. We're talking about hundreds of sites. We're talking about tens of thousands of people that will need to know how to do this. Well, they're not gonna just show up, yeah? So anything realistic that could accomplish these goals require detailed planning and also building capacity, capacity for training, capacity for process development. And how are regulatory bodies going to cope with the uh, tremendous amount of work that they will have to do to approve these site changes, these process changes, et cetera, by the thousands, right? I mean, imagine the backlog that this would create at FDA. So there is the need to think also how they would cope with, you know, what could be a, a, a tsunami of, you know, post-approval changes and things like that, right? So that's why I think to take the time to really understand what's going to take to do this is critical. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Fernando Musio, uh, Frederick Kahn, thank you for the positive pragmatism. Thank you to our editors and experts for sharing their insight. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our newsletters. When you sign up for our e-newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars, and hear about episodes of Drug Digest, which is a video series. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. We will see you next time.